but governments don't really have the tools to easily get back to people and let them know what has been done with their input. So that's also what we what we try to really focusing on, giving that feedback um, to people. On today's episode, we're talking to Aileen, the founder of Citizen Lab, an organization that is trying to connect people back to the issues that connect with them locally, politically, and making sure that there's a transparent and fair process in place to make sure that their voices are heard. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast brought to you by the Harvey Nash Group, hosted by myself, David Savage, today joined by Amber, where we talk to leaders from across the industry and bring you some tech news. Joining me on today's show, we've got Amber. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. Enjoying your time working from home. I see you're the local legend on Strava. I am, yeah. Feeling very smug about it as well. I am the local legend. Although I never really see that many runners, so I can't see myself having too much competition, <laughs> to be honest. I Basically, think what's happened, right, is you, you've moved to somewhere fairly unpopulated so that you can climb up the Strava leaderboards, right? Yeah, it was all like a a strategic move really I had to sort of look into the the runners before I made the move but um yeah it's working in my favor so I will take my crown and I'm like I said very smug about it at the moment <laughs> anyone who's not a runner on Strava is going to be like what the hell's going on however um one thing that lots of people can relate to at work we are doing this challenge um Alistair Brownlee the Olympian is is going to be joining us virtually I believe uh, but this thing called Gojo where we're going to be competing between our offices and countries to see who can run the most kilometers. And I, I am incredibly pleased, and I don't care how many people are pissed off saying this, cyclists are disadvantaged because no one likes cyclists. No, no, they, they really don't. You know what? I, I saw I saw a really nice bike the other day online, and I was thinking of getting it. Oh, no, And then I just it. thought, you know what? I will annoy everyone. And I hate cyclists just as much as the next person, so I'm not going to get on that trend it's just not worth it is it no <laughs> the, the one time that i've come in for for absolute hatred on social is when i made an ill-advised comment about cyclists and i just got berated what did you say i was something like like it was a glib throwaway remark in reply to something that had been posted by James O'Brien, who, who's like one of the liberal people who does an LBC show. They, they do exist. Um, something about like cyclists are dangerous and don't pay any attention to road, to road signs and stuff, which basically the amount of times I've been nearly mown down by cyclists on, on, on crossings because they don't seem to think that red light supplies to them. Oh, anyway. That, that is, Yeah. That's a whole another subject altogether, but I do agree with you there. They're real. Mm, like, mm, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. But I said this, and the amount of hatred I got was unreal. Oh, well. All the cyclists are going to be listening to this and sending you more hate. So if you're out there and you're listening, send Dave hate. <laughs> Not this, me, this is how, Dave. This is how to alienate loads of listeners. Anyone who's got a bike, <laughs> and I'm just kind of like... I hate him. No, I don't hate him. I don't hate him. But look, this has some relevance because today's podcast is with Citizen Lab um, and politics can be just as divisive as cyclists. Uh, and uh, Citizen Lab are providing a neutral, official and more constructive space for conversations, certainly more neutral and constructive <laughs> than my hate-filled speech directed at cyclists on social media. So we'll hand over to Eileen and uh, the conversation with uh, Citizen Lab. I really hope that Eileen isn't uh, also a cyclist. She might be, given that she lives in Belgium. I hadn't really thought this through. But anyway, we'll hand over to the interview, and then afterwards we'll come back with some commentary. 
On today's show, I'm talking to Eileen Merlat. Uh, thank you for joining us from Brussels in Belgium, obviously. I hope most people know where Brussels is. <laughs> How are you this morning? Hopefully they still do. Good, good. Thanks, David. I'm doing well. Uh, and look, you're the co-founder of Citizen Lab, uh, a business that you started whilst you were a student. Um, you're now, what, five, six, seven years into that experiment? Yeah, exactly. Almost six years, six years in summer. So, and whilst I say experiment, because it started as a student, you're now employing over 40 people and operating out of 15 countries. So it's go going rather well. Yeah, yeah it's going uh, really well. I think um, COVID also made that we, we've been growing fairly rapidly over the past year and years. So look, before we get into why that might be, and I, I, I think that when you explain what you do, it'll be become quite obvious to people why during COVID you might have grown. Uh, what does Citizen Lab do? Yeah, so Citizen Lab is a citizen engagement participation platform. We've built software to connect uh, governments and citizens, mainly local governments. And the idea is that people can go to a website, share their ideas, um, and basically interact on topics that matter to them. So we want to make policymaking more interactive, fun for people to, to participate, because traditionally there are offline meetings or consultations very late into the process. So we kind of want to bring that citizen engagement earlier in the process in order that when decisions are made, uh, more support um, is actually there for the decisions. Okay. When you say local governments, just to make sure, because obviously uh, I might immediately apply kind of British terminology to it and get the wrong end of the stick, but I kind of think of central government and local government, I think of of local councils or I think of, of mayoral uh, seats and so on. What, what, what is your uh, definition of local? Is it the same or slightly different? No, it's the same. And actually, the reason why we started with on that local level is that because we see that people care about uh, care most about their neighborhoods, the, the topics, the environment they interact with daily. Um, and that's basically the best level to kind of start building trust, more trust in governments. So that's why we fair, we work mainly with um, local councils, um, mayors, etc. And then we also do more and more higher level government projects, national projects. But let's say 75% of what we do is still interacting daily with citizens on topics of mobility, urban planning, participatory budgeting. So things that are very, very, I mean, specific, uh, where they can easily relate to. I suppose in the pandemic, people's local world has become their world. I mean, there was one point in, in the first lockdown, uh, I was living in West London at the time. I've moved, moved out of London actually now, but I was living in West London at the time. And I realized that I hadn't really traveled any further than about the 10 kilometers that I could travel on my feet in any one direction. And my world had suddenly shrank and everything local yeah. became very important. I suppose that's exactly. something that, that everyone has felt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we've also seen more engagement on our platforms because people start to experience and explore their neighborhoods differently. They get more ideas on what could be improved. Uh, so that's also the reason why we grew so much in the past year. One, there's been more engagement on our platforms. Citizens are 
yeah, they, they want to engage more. But then, of course, there's also the governments who are our clients. Uh, they needed to move to digital. Um, I mean, physical meetings couldn't happen anymore. Um, so that's why we've also seen our, our client base uh, doubling over the past uh, year. Out of interest, you're obviously based, um, as we said, in Belgium. Have you seen that as a, as a trend across the board? I mean, you operate out of 15 countries, as, as we mentioned. Um, yeah. Have there been certain countries where, where there's been a real uptake or, or has it been fairly, fairly kind of um, similar across, across the board? Yeah, after one year, I'd say it's similar. I think we've seen differences in how quickly some countries took it up. Some countries are more like open and keen to immediately innovating and experimenting. So I think, for example, in 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 the Netherlands uh, or also in the UK, I think we've been fairly quick in signing new new clients and working with new governments. Other countries, like for example, Belgium or France, were a bit slower. But after a year, it's it's kind of similar. So they've all experienced the need to go digital, and and most of them went went digital in the past year. So look, one one thing I'd ask: there is obviously trust in politics is at a fairly low ebb at the moment. Um, how can you use a platform like this and encourage people that it is going to make a difference, that it can restore trust yeah. in politics? Because I would imagine that people. You know, if we're talking about voters, voters in this circumstance are, are the government's customers, let's say, um, it might be quite difficult to get them to engage and to get them to, to buy into this idea that it's actually going mm. to make a difference and it's not just something else that, you know, oh, what does it really matter? What can I do? No one's listening. Yeah. Yeah, no, very good question. I think it's mainly about, so first, the first thing we do is we engage citizens on topics they care about, but indeed you need to convince them that something will happen, that it matters. Um, so what we've actually done when working with the governments, our clients, we've built like a whole admin back backend side of the of the platform where they can actually um, get back to citizens they get feedback so a lot of what we do is actually setting expectations showing to people like if you share your idea today this will be done with it and then also making sure that governments get back to you individually so they let you know like hey this idea we've been we've taken it up in that specific strategic plan or we're going to do this or that not because of that reason so it's really also not only about the engagement on the front office but actually building a back office that makes it easier for governments to actually get back to citizens because that's what traditionally has gone wrong like there has been consultation, there has been citizen engagement participation, but governments don't really have the tools to easily get back to people and let them know what has been done with their input. So that's also what we what we try to really focusing on, giving that feedback um, to people. And I suppose what you're also able to do is to collate the, the topics, the stuff that people are interested in more broadly. It, it, it's not one person going through to an MP's... Um, office hour or, or you know or you know a situation where they're kind of sitting down and meeting their constituents and and random stories and trying to collate what what the overall impression is you've got hard data behind what people are interested in 
Yeah, yeah. I think indeed we also want to give governments insights into what people are thinking, who they are, how it's different per age, gender, neighborhood, etc. So that's uh, that's one thing. And I think what's also really important is that, yeah, it's a platform where people don't really start complaining or share not in my backyard frustrations, uh, but that they actually see what other people are thinking, that they interact with each other and that they prioritize for for the common good and that they start to understand each other's opinions. Um, and more than on social media, I think on social media, um, yeah, online debates can be very heated and polarized, mm-hmm. but it's some kind of neutral place Uh, that's official and that's why we see that citizens also interact in a more constructive way. So when you were at university and you had this idea to try and try and make some kind of difference, did you view it as a technology-driven proposal at the time or is it that, that you started on this journey and then became aware of how technology might be transformative? Um, no, I think we started very much from the tech. And I think that's also why we, we've been so successful because traditionally in the space, you have like a lot of engagement experts, engagement specialists, but they take it very much from a service driven point of view when they work with governments. And we really put like the tech central because we believe that like very intuitive, good technology can really change things. So that's also why we've been so successful because on one on one hand, citizens find it very easy to use, very intuitive. It's fun for them to interact with the platform, whereas other kind of tools can sometimes be very old fashioned. And then governments like that we innovate, that we build AI into the process. So it's very much tech driven, but on the team, everyone is very passionate about politics and, and working on reinventing democracy. But at the core, we're, we're a tech company for sure. How do you make sure that the AI doesn't pick up biases? Because I suppose where you're dealing with local government and local issues, it's it's quite small data sets and it might be quite difficult to, you know, one group of people and one demograph might have one particular slant that I suppose might might pull your data in one direction and that, that might be a challenge. Yeah, I think, first of all, the AI is more used on like less on the demographic part, but more on like um, identifying clusters in the data and topics that arise. So it's more to help governments actually analyze all the data and less on on the demographic Mm. point of view. But it's true that like who builds the tech, who participates can still create biases. So first, we want to make sure that our team is diverse, but that takes time, especially on tech teams. Um, And then second, we've recently gone open source actually to show to people how our AI algorithms are built, that people can dig into it, and that we also have some kind of accountability um, on, on how decisions are made and that we're transparent on that. That's quite a brave decision to go open source, because I suppose people might say, you know that's that's your intellectual property or you know if there are if there are competitors in the in the space mm-hmm. it's, it's it's very it's very admirable and commendable that you want to make sure that especially when you're dealing with trust and public trust that you want to be as transparent as you can but i suppose from a, attracting investors and and having an edge over your competition that that's an unusual step within the tech sector 
Yeah, I think in general, civic tech is very much an open innovation space. So different players talk to one another. We all, most of us believe that together we make the space bigger because it's such a growing industry. So I think we're not really, or we haven't been really scared of like the impact on, on competition. It's rather like the impact on our business model. So it's... Um, like smaller institutions, communities, they can fully host their own basic platform of citizen app. But then the other for like the more advanced functionalities, you still need a commercial license. So there it's just source available. So we've tried to bring in best of both worlds, making our code open, but still kind of protecting our, our business model. So how do you measure the trust in government? through utilizing your services is improving? Is it that the incumbent gets reelected because they're, they're in office, they can see what people care about and therefore they get reelected because, because people think that they are doing a good job of listening to them? Um, no, not really. Um, I think we see ourselves as, as, a, as a social impact um, company. And when we work with governments, we actually mainly work with civil servants and, um, and administration. So it, it says directly with, with the politicians. And when we measure our impact, we actually look at three different things, like how can we be more inclusive, representative, and responsive. And on all these three things, we then put certain measures in place. So inclusive, who are we reaching? Are we reaching younger people or not? Then that's actually yeah, representative and inclusive. Um, participatory focuses on, do we actually have good debates? Is it not just like, I mean, Brexit is the best example of a bad participati participatory design. Yeah. You basically just like put a question there, but it actually needs to be much more interactive. And then the last thing is like, are we actually providing that feedback? What's the feedback rate on platform? So we very much look at these impact metrics and then from there um, advise our, our clients on how to do better. And look, you touch on an area there that I, I do want to do want to talk about before we wrap up because I think it's really yeah. important. Um, uh, look, whilst I was a bit a bit contrite with my you know people getting reelected, you're dealing with a technology platform. Technology and, and digital skills or access to technology is a, is a big concern. Um, so how do you make sure that you are inclusive? Because it might be that that certain sections of society that would naturally have lower trust in government are also the people that you struggle to reach and struggle to engage mm -hmm. with on these platforms or may not even have the ability all the time necessarily to jump online and 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 have the the digital kind of access to these tools that that we that many of us take for granted rather yeah, so I think there's our responsibility as like a tech company to make sure that the platform is as intuitive, accessible uh, as possible. Uh, we also are experimenting a lot like as a as a Belgian, we know what it is to work with multiple languages, so with multilingual platforms, etc. Um, but then there's also what tech cannot do. So in the end, it's like the governments that have, participatory processes and we very much advise them to focus on a blend of offline and online to make sure that you reach everyone and I, especially during the pandemic that's been really hard but you still need to 
do paper surveys. You still need to go out on the street with tablets, etc. You'll still have to meet people where they are in community centers. So it's very much a, a, a combination of both. And what we see governments are doing is that increasingly they also bring the technology to offline meetings and actually say like, hey, here's an iPad. Let's like let's sign you up to this platform. And then it's a nice way for them to get introduced to um to the technology. So it's, um, I mean, inclu being inclusive is something that we as a company very much focus on to make our tech and our platform as inclusive as possible. But then we also advise governments on how to be more inclusive in their um, processes. Well, Aline, look, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, obviously, I think most people would agree it's, it's, needed right now as well so I, I hope it continues to go well and thank you for spending some time talking to us today thank you very much david right one of the things i i love about this is um how she talks about the fact that she she and the organization have gone open source to show their algorithms and to show that they're transparent which i think with something like politics where trust is at such a low ebb and where you're really trying to get people on board with the idea that you are being diverse, inclusive, um, neutral, doing everything that you can as a company to show your workings, to show how you're going about doing that, is a really incredible step. Yeah, massively. I think, I, I think it's a lot of people will be really open to this idea of using this type of platform because like you said, recently, they've just not, well, we haven't been able to go anywhere, have we? So you've started to like look more at your sort of local surroundings and take more notice to these types of things, just because we've only had, you know, our local surroundings and we, yeah, we haven't had any other options, to be honest. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really cool idea. And I think you're right. I think they have to be quite accessible and inclusive and really sort of rebuild that trust, which is, as you said, not necessarily associated with sort of politics and local governments often. Yeah, and I suppose I suppose with local government, the good thing is that it can be less tribal. I think with national politics, you often get the kind of the big kind of party politics divide. At a local level, good candidates, regardless of which party they are, often if they're if they're someone that you know is a really good person who cares about the community, that matters more than which colour rosette. Mm -hmm. um, they have, and people do, you, you know, people do care more about what's happening locally to them. I mean, you've moved into a new area. I bet you've probably done more than you would have done pre pandemic to find out a little bit about what's going on in your local community. Oh yeah. Massively. I think because before I was obviously sort of living with parents and it sounds silly, but it didn't really seem like it was massively my, my concern. Whereas I guess now it's me. This is my area. It's my home. So yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. Have sort of. And you're spending more time there. Yeah. You're not. Absolutely. You're not just in the week. You're not just getting up, going into London, spending all your time in London, coming back to just outside Milton Keynes, and then and then sleeping, and then doing the same thing. You're spending your days there. You know, and even even though you will probably start going back into the office a few days a week, you're still probably going to be spending seventy percent, seventy five percent of your time there rather than in the city. So therefore, yeah. 
what the local council does, what local community groups do, all of those things. God forbid, maybe even what the parish council decides, although we don't want to get onto kind of the, the whole Jackie Weaver thing again. Uh, but what those kind of groups do actually affect people's lives in a way that they might not have really felt that connected to previously. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I a lot of this is going to go, a lot of the interview kind of went quite over my head in complete honesty. So not the best person to speak about this with, but I think... Yeah, you're right. Like it's it's just something that people are taking more of an interest in. Like you want to live in a nice kind of safe, inclusive area. And um, I think this this platform only makes that sort of easier to do, really, to spark those kind of conversations. But isn't that the point? Like if traditionally lots of this stuff have gone over your head, you're exactly the right kind of person for Citizen Lab to start talking to because what they're trying to do is get people who've been disengaged and probably wouldn't have thought that this was for them to start interacting and, and caring about local issues in a more active way. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. I think, I think you're right. I think the kind of like the demographic that they're going after, it's um yeah, like people like myself really that just haven't been massively engaged. And the fact that there's kind of something there that makes it way more accessible. Like I said, there's conversations you can speak to sort of similar like-minded people Um yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's a really good idea. I think if you can open up those types of sort of conversations and have that dialogue, whereas before, I think with a lot of things like this, I think they're quite stuck in their ways and sort of quite, I think mm. she'd mentioned it, it's quite old fashioned, like the whole approach to it is quite old fashioned. And that's why a lot of people like myself might just exclude themselves, I guess, like we don't get involved because don't feel as though we know enough or might feel a little bit overwhelmed by it. Or, or whether or not it'll have any impact. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing as well. If I were to go and, I don't know, say, write to my sort of local government about an issue, would anything happen? Would the letter get there? Would they read it? Would they sort of care for it? You just don't know. Whereas if it's on sort of a platform and all the results are there and they can see the results and you can see that something's happening as well. Like she said, we don't want people to just, you know, do something and then they just never hear back like we'll kind of keep them updated there's communication I think that's really important like you won't continuously keep putting your efforts into something if you just see no results whereas if you get Mm. feedback and you sort of see things starting to change then of course you'll be more invested yeah and it's a real benefit as well to hear that within that area you know within the, the space of civic tech there is open innovation going on they're not scared of competition there's that you know the the competition has more of an impact on the business model rather than anything else. It's, it sounds quite collaborative. And if they're going to grow and these companies are going to thrive, then actually sharing and, and to a certain extent, knowledge sharing is, is, is going to be a real bonus and, and positive for them. Mm. No, definitely. No, I completely agree. I think um, I've not seen anything like it before. And I think, the fact that they've grown throughout COVID, as you mentioned at the start of the interview, I think that's, um, yeah, I'm not sort of surprised by that. I think it's it's something people being at home more, as you said, they're not sort of traveling to London and sort of elsewhere, like they obviously going out on more walks. That's a big thing at the moment. So spending more time outside, sort of seeing their local community. So, yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely sort of a good idea. And I think the fact that they're growing, they're sort of becoming more successful. Um, yeah, uh, sort of, I think that would only sort of, get better and better really yeah yeah absolutely well look i think we'll take a quick 
break here. So, Aline, thanks for being our guest. We will come back in a moment with the news that self-driving cars could get the green light for use on UK motorways this year. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. Right, Amber, do you drive? I do, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm useless. I never bothered learning. <laughs> oh, God. I drive, but I'm still useless. I'm still a useless driver. <laughs> Well, you're less useless than I am. I mean, <laughs> I was learning pre-pandemic because I was like, I'm going to move to the countryside. I should probably learn to drive. And then the pandemic happened. And then I moved to the countryside. And I still can't drive. But I am in the process of fixing it. Um, um, okay. However, it does sometimes feel like by the time I actually learn to drive, driving manually will somehow become not illegal, but uh, less the norm. And this would be appear to be um, another step in that direction with automated lane keeping systems allowed when traffic is moving slowly so basically this is the news that um let's get this right department for transport confirmed it would pursue plans to allow new models fitted with alks which is an automated lane keeping system uh, to drive without driver's input the cars will be defined as self-driving when an or the system is in operation at a maximum speed of 37 miles an hour 37 miles an hour so I guess it's like heavy traffic and whatever else. So the car can oh, just take gosh. over. Oh, gosh. I thought you were talking like big speeds here, like Fast and Furious stuff, Dave. This, this is a step though, right? As yeah. As soon as this happens, it's, it's, it, once they become norm and no accidents happen, and that is a big, you know, that needs to happen and people's perceptions begin to change, mm. I can see there being, and excuse the pun, but there will be an acceleration of this, of this technology. Yeah, you're right. I think they need to start us off slowly and then gradually build it up because yeah. um, lots of people will be really sceptical to this. Totally. And, and, and rightfully so. I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I think, oh, I don't know. I, I, I would give it a go, but I just, not that I'm the best driver ever, but I probably trust my own driving over like a like a self-driving car. Because what about if it suddenly loses control or something? Or, I don't know. Like it's just. It's not, but that is based on. I don't know whether it's irrational or rational fear, but humans do cause the majority of mistakes. Yeah, true. You know, true. accidents happen because of human error. I know. But I, oh, I don't know. It would just feel so weird. Like if you were sat there in the car and not actually like driving, you just feel so out of control, wouldn't you? But then at 37 miles per hour, probably wouldn't feel that out of control. I think I think you'd be okay. What a lot of people say with these things is that it would be better to have an automated uh, driver sitting in the background ready to take over if you're going to make a mistake mm. rather than asking the human to jump in if they think that the computer's about to make a mistake. Because if you've been sitting there paying no attention, watching, I don't know, um, 
the latest, I don't know, uh, some random film. I can't think of any film that seems appropriate right now. But you're watching some random film, and then all of a sudden it's like, take control of the car, you're going to be totally unprepared, and you're probably going to make a mess of it anyway. But if there's a case that the dry, the silent driver is waiting in the background for you to screw up, say like mm. someone's tired, they should have taken a break, they, they're, they're kind of falling asleep at the wheel, and they're about to cause an accident, the computer doesn't get tired, doesn't get panicked by having to suddenly spring into action. Whereas the reverse isn't true the other way around. Yeah, okay, I see what you mean. But then uh, I still think, what about if there's like a delay or something? Is in like, you know, you just said that obviously it has to like suddenly Yeah, but a computer's reaction and... time, the computer reaction time is a hell of a lot quicker than yours. Yeah, I, do, I, I just, I'm not sure if I'm completely sold on this purely because I just, this, this is one thing as well. I could never have been a driving instructor because basically what you've just said about like, say you sit there and you see someone make a mistake and you want to suddenly jump in. I think if I had this, I just feel really uneasy the entire time. Like that I would just want to sort of like meddle and just get involved or take over or I just um, being a bit of a busybody. But I just I don't know if I could just sit back and just let the car drive for itself. But then I have a terrible, terrible luck with cars. So I'm going to tell you a funny story here, Dave. It's quite unrelated. But um, so my first car, someone drove past me and they knocked off my wind mirror. So I had okay. One, okay. So that's one instant that I'm not good with cars, and then my second. That sounds car, like someone else is not good with cars, but go on. <laughs> well, yeah, true, but I just just my whole luck with cars in general is just not good. Okay. So second car, um, I got a brick thrown through the back window. Just again, like, that's not a lot to do with your driving, Amber. I know, but I just think in general, and then <laughs> hang on, there's a third incident, and then my third car. So I went, this, this doesn't even sound true, but like I genuinely have a picture of the note and it's just the most bizarre thing. So it was parked on my street when I was living in Watford and I walked up to the car and I put the windscreen wipers on because the windscreen was really dirty. And there was a, like a little note in the, like tucked into the windscreen wiper. And it basically said like a drunk guy stole a bike, crashed into your car. And now there's like some damage. Like, and there was a number provided to call them. So as I said, Dave, slightly unrelated, but that is three separate instances on three cars where I've had a lot of trouble with cars. So I just don't think it's best that I sort of give this robot self-driving car thing a go. Know, it sounds to me like you could probably do with some help, I'm perfectly honest. Why on earth did you get a brick thrown through the, the, the window of your car? <laughs> Um, I don't know. It was just parked when I was at uni. It was parked out like on the road. Where had you parked it? Just on just a normal road, just a normal okay. road. And just yeah, I just came back and basically I was walking. This is the worst thing. I was walking towards my car and then there was a scarf on the floor and I was like, oh, I think I've got that scarf. It turns out someone had gone into my car, like obviously thrown the brick, like gone through my stuff that was on the back seat thinking there was something. And then my scarf and then my T-shirt and something else was like on the road. Oh as dear, said, you must have pissed as, someone off on a drunken night. I, I, I think of that, but as I said, I'm related, but um, yeah, I just don't trust myself or trust any other people with, with cars or just bad luck with cars in general. Fair enough. There we go. Amber's <laughs> not in. Amber's not in um, Alks for a totally unrelated random reasons. Uh, thank you for listening today. Everyone else, have a lovely weekend. <laughs>